Welcome to One Chapel. We're a family of neighborhood churches in the Austin area. Our vision is to help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. It's a place to connect, grow, and serve the communities where we live. You can learn more about One Chapel and how to get involved at onechapel.com. And now, here's this week's message. Bibles out with me. We're doing a, we're kind of doing things differently here this morning. We're flipping the service up just a little bit. It'll all make sense to you in just a few minutes. But we've been doing this series right here that we're calling at the table. And the theme verse for this series is Luke chapter 7, verse 34, which says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. We've been talking about how for so many of us, this kind of just goes over our heads, this idea of eating and drinking. And what world does this have to do with anything? Why is this even noteworthy? Why are we even doing a series on this? And I think one of the reasons why this idea of eating and drinking doesn't really impact us is because meals meant way more back then in Jesus' the culture than they really do for us today. I think for us, we've kind of lost the power and the impact that meals can have in our lives, because the reality is that meals have the power to bring people together, but they also have the power to pull people apart. And for Jesus, this practice of eating and drinking wasn't just a side point to what he was doing. It was actually very central to everything that he did while he was here. As a matter of fact, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, says, For the Son of Man, he was seeking to save what was lost. And so that was Jesus' mission. I think most of us understand that that's why Jesus came. But Luke 7, verse 34, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. When you think about it, that was kind of his methodology. In other words, that's how he did it. Um, there's a lot of things that he did while he was on earth, but this is one of the ways that he was reaching into the culture that was really difficult because his culture was such that, that there were a lot of people that were hostile towards him and really at arm's length towards him and really didn't want nothing to do with his what he was saying, his message, and how he was talking about God. And so the way that Jesus walked people really into God's kingdom was literally one meal at a time. And I just think this is really important for us to understand the culture in which we live in today. Because we now live in what's called a post-Christian culture. And if you've been around, we've been talking about just what that means for our society here today. Because it's not really, it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody's forsaken Christianity and, and um, even Christian morals and those types of things. But there's really this kind of reactionary impulse that's happening against Christianity. Which is the reason probably almost everybody here in this room You've had some of those types of experiences where people have been pushing back just a little bit. And people don't want to hear about God. People don't want to hear about church. They don't want to hear about Jesus. And it's just because there is this reactionary thing that's happening in our culture. And sociologists call this a post-Christian culture. And so one of the questions we've been talking about in the series is that, well, how do we have these conversations with people? I mean, how do we invite people into this amazing life of following Jesus, this thing for so many of us, really has changed our life. But how do we bring people into that in a culture that can be really hostile towards it? And it's not PC, and we feel weird and awkward about talking about Jesus to our friends and our, our neighbors, or our family, our coworkers, and our classmates. That's kind of what we've been talking about here in this series. And what we've been doing is that we've been looking at different times where Jesus would sit down at a table and eat a meal with them. And there's so many different examples of this in Scripture. We've been taking seven different ones out of Scripture through this series. And 
So many of these people that he would sit down and eat with were what was considered untouchable. They were on the margins, they were on the ends, and really religious people thought there's no way that God would ever go after them. They were kind of these untouchables here, which is the reason why he had the reputation of being a drunkard and being, being um, a glutton is because he was hanging out with all these kind of questionable people. And so today, we're going to look at the time when Jesus sat down and had a meal with a religious leader, but it's really the unexpected guests and the uninvited guests that shows up at this meal that I think get our attention. Look at this in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. It says, afterward, a Jewish religious leader named Simon asked Jesus to his home for dinner. Jesus accepted the invitation. When he went to Simon's home, he took his place at the table. In the neighborhood, there was an immoral woman on the street known to all to be a prostitute. When she heard about Jesus being in Simon's house, she took an exquisite flask made from alabaster, filled it with the most expensive perfume, went right into the home of the Jewish religious leader, and knelt at the feet of Jesus in front of all the guests. Broken and weeping, she covered his feet with tears that fell from her face. She kept crying and drying his feet with her long hair. Over and over she kissed Jesus' feet, then she opened up her flask and anointed his feet with her costly perfume as an act of worship. Now let's stop right here in the story because I think it's important to understand that scholars argue that this prostitute woman was relating to Jesus the only way that she knew how to relate to men. She had been in the old ring of prostitution her entire life, and so the only way she could express is the only way that she knew how to. And it's messy, right? When you look at her, this interaction, her kind of intruding into this meal, it's messy. And it's breaking every social and etiquette and religious rule that there is. And I think if we all were to be honest here today, I think for almost every single one of us, what she was doing would make every one of us uncomfortable if we were in this situation. Because after all, this is Jesus. And yet, I, you don't do this around Jesus. This is not appropriate behavior. Can we all agree with that? And that's how we kind of respond to this. Or another way to kind of say to put it in our culture here today is that this is church. <laughs> you don't behave that way in church. You gotta be more refined when you come to church, right? You gotta understand the social and the etiquette rules of what it means when you go to church, what it means to be religious, to, to be Christian. I think so many of us, this is kind of how we react to this. But again, Jesus' response is so different. Look at this in verse 39. It says, when Simon saw what was happening, he thought, this man can't be a true prophet. If he were really a prophet, he would know what kind of sinful woman is touching him. Jesus said, Simon, I have a word for you. And go ahead, teacher, I want to hear it. He answered. It's a story about two men who were deeply in debt. One owed the bank $100,000, and the other only owed $10,000. When it was obvious that neither of them would be able to repay their debts, the kind banker graciously wrote off the debts and forgave them all that they owed. Tell me, Simon, which of the two debtors would be the most thankful? Which one would love the banker most? Simon answered, I suppose it would be the one with the greatest debt from You're right, Jesus answered. Then he spoke to Simon about the woman still weeping at his feet. Don't you see this woman kneeling here? She is doing for me what you didn't bother to do. When I entered your home as your guest, you didn't think about offering me water to wash the dust off my feet. 
that she came into your home and washed, came into your home and washed my feet with her many tears and then dried my feet with her hair. You didn't even welcome me into your home with the customary kiss of greeting, but from the moment I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't take the time to anoint my head with fragrant oil, but she anointed my head and feet with the finest perfume. She has been forgiven of all of her many sins. This is why she has shown me such extravagant love. But those who assume they have very little to be forgiven will love me very little. Then Jesus said to the woman at his feet, All your sins are forgiven. All the dinner guests said among themselves, Who is the one who can even forgive sins? Then Jesus said to the woman, Your faith in me has given you life. Now, you may leave and walk in the ways of peace. You know, it's, it's so interesting to me that what most people remember about the story is everything that this woman was doing for Jesus. And it's rightly so. I mean, it, it's exactly what Jesus said would happen in Matthew 26, verse 13. He said, truly, I tell you, whenever, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And so this is the reason why we remember this story, because it's always told in relationship to the gospel. So... So a lot of you, if you've been around the church, if you heard the gospel, then this would be almost a little bit of a familiar story. But just as much as we remember this woman here in Luke chapter 7, I think it's really important that we not forget about this religious leader. Because this church-going, God-loving religious leader missed it. And he missed it big time. And it looks to me like when you're reading the story that Jesus was just kind of kind of let it go by. You know, he wasn't going to give it any attention. He wasn't going to bring it up until Simon starts verbalizing the judgment, his judgment over this woman that comes and kind of interrupts the dinner here. And so, did you catch it? I mean, did you catch what, what Simon was doing? Did you catch how he missed it? Because Simon was so concerned with his religious appearances that he completely disregarded and left out all common and thoughtful hospitality. Look at this again in verse 44. It says, Then he spoke to Simon about the woman, still we can never speak. Don't you see this woman kneeling here? She is doing for me what you didn't bother to do. When I entered your home as your guest, you didn't think about offering me water to wash the dust off my feet. Now, we don't necessarily... This is not something we do in our culture today, right? But you got to remember, back in that, those days, they were not like the shoes that you are wearing. It was more like sandals. And so um, cleanliness would, would be an issue. And so when you're walking around, there's not sidewalks. There's not paved roads. And so your feet are going to be filthy. So it was a common act of hospitality when you would go to a person's house. But the first thing that would happen is they would actually wash your feet. It was just a customary hospitality that you would do as the one who was hosting this gathering. And so Jesus is saying, you didn't do that for me. This is common. This is, co this is common thoughtfulness. And you completely missed it. He goes on and he says in verse 45, you didn't even welcome me into your home with a customary kiss or greeting. So again, very cultural. That would have been what would happen when you walk into a room, when you walk into a house. Not only will your feet be washed, but you'll be received with a greeting, verbal, and also be kissed. And it's just the way we 
we ended up kissed so much in our culture. First time I went to Eastern Europe and I was kissed by a man, and it freaked me out just a little bit. <laughs> but you know what? So in their culture, kiss is is degree. Our can be a handshake, might be a hug, you know, some sort of verbal thing. This religious leader completely forgot to do any of all of these things. That were just customary, thoughtful hospitality, possible thoughtful hospitality. And then 46, he says, he didn't take the time to anoint my head with fragrant oil. Again, a very customary thing. Um, again, probably in this culture, you thought not a fast going on, and so he covered up. <laughs> he covered up with fragrant oil, so you smell this a little bit better as you're entering this room. Now, look at this, I don't want you to miss it. Because isn't it interesting in our pursuit of God that we can completely miss it? You hear me? In our actual pursuit, you may be pursuing God, but you can actually miss it. We can become so religious that we no longer see and we're no longer moved by the things that are on God's part and the messiness of the people's lives around us and start offending you, and this religious judgmentalism starts beginning to consume your heart. It's so easy for how that can happen to every single one of us. I said this a couple weeks ago, that when most of us read this passage in Luke chapter 7, verse 34, which says, the Son of Man can be eating, drinking, you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I said this a couple weeks ago, that when most of us read this passage, I think it's hard for us to understand these words, tax collector and sinners, because those words don't necessarily bring to our mind the image of the worst of the worst. But in that culture, with those Jewish people, that's exactly who those people were. They were at the bottom of the social um, barrel there. And so, and so, when, so when Jesus was associated with these types of people, I mean, it was pulling on everything that you don't do. You don't associate with those type of people. For us, when we read those words, we don't necessarily have that same type of emotional reaction to it. But maybe if Jesus were here today, what if, how would you feel if you heard a story of Jesus eating dinner with a pedophile? Or if you saw on TV that Jesus was over to lunch at a white nationalist who had just been marching in Charlottesville. Or maybe a, you saw a video of him eating a meal around a campfire in the caves with, a, with ISIS terrorists in the mountains of Afghanistan. I mean, how does that make you feel? I mean, does it make you scared? Does it make you angry? Does it make you confused? Now all of a sudden, you're starting to feel maybe just a little bit of how those people were feeling when Jesus was associating eating meals with these tax collectors and these sinners. But I think we really need to understand the heart of God in all of this. We need to understand Jesus' mission again, because his mission was to what? To seek and to save the lost, right? That's his mission. Listen, everybody, that means everyone. Jesus came to seek and to save everyone. And when we start talking about everyone, that means it's going to be messy. It's going to be messy. Because our people's lives, our lives are messy. Pedophiles' lives are messy. Sex addicts' lives are messy. Alcoholics, drug addicts, their lives are messy. Cussing redneck Texans are messy, everybody. Attorneys are messy. Teachers are messy. 
our all, every one of us, I can go down the list, all of our lives are messy. We just kind of think that we're not as messy as everybody else. But let me just tell you something. Your life is just as messy. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And that includes everybody. But I think for some, so many of us, what happens is that when all of a sudden you're around somebody's life who's just a little bit more messy than you, he starts rattling our religious sensibility. It starts rattling that. It's like, I think we're going to really be honest. Then I, I think we're honest with what's going on. It's so easy to see that we've fallen into the same trap that this religious leader did when this messy, completely out of the order prostitute interrupted his time at the table. This was his time. He's the one who invited Jesus to his table for this meal. And now this woman on the streets is coming in and having this display that's completely inappropriate. And now all of a sudden, this religious judgmentalism begins to rise up inside of us. And so today, I want to poke at that just a little bit in each of our lives. I want to poke at this religious judgmentalism that can get inside of us because I just think it's so easy to get into our religious boxes and think that God and church have to fit into our preferences. Can I do that okay? So you're going to love me if I do this? Sorry, turn to your neighbor and tell, tell your neighbor you should probably talk about you now. Alright. Now again, through the series, what we're talking about here is how from Jesus and really through the entire writings of the Apostle Paul in his letters, that what we see over and over and over and over again is the followers of Jesus were eating and drinking around a table in a home as a family. That's what this whole series has been about. And the New Testament tells the story. It tells the story of how the church spread from just a few dozen people around a table with Jesus to out into the streets of Jerusalem and then really throughout the entire Roman Empire to what it is today, which is a global historic movement numbering two plus billion people who are living and breathing right now here today. So the New Testament just tells the story of the first two decades. And so one way to tell the story of the, the last two millennial is actually to look through it and through the lens of architecture. Now don't kind of jump out and leave real quick because there's a point to all of this. And I didn't come to church thinking I'm going to talk about architecture here today. But depending on how you, you look at it, there have been four or so major stages of church architecture over the past two millennia. Um, and each corresponds with a stage of church history. The first was the home. Because for hundreds of years, followers of Jesus, they built zero buildings. There were no church buildings. It was all done through the home. Any site, anything outside of that, it just wasn't an option. I mean, when you're running from a government hit squad, when your spirituality is completely illegal, it's against the law, then everything that you do has to be done inside of the home. And so the center of gravity for this stage of the church was the table. It, it was the table. Now, in, in spite of... The, the law, which was against Christianity, Christianity continued to spread all throughout the Roman Empire. And so as churches grew in size and paganism decreased and decreased in the culture, some churches moved in into, you know, like Apollo's temples or Zeus temples or Aphrodite temples. But they were just simply larger homes kind of built in an octagon shape. And so still, the center of gravity was the, was the temple. 
But then, once the way of Jesus became legalized in the fourth century, it spread really to the edge of the Roman Empire. At this point, the church started building cathedrals. This is the second stage. Early on, they were all Romanesque in style. Then, later on, you have the Gothic style, kind of like Notre Dame in Paris, if you've ever been there, the one that just had that big fire back in April, or the Baroque style in Italy. And almost all of them were built in the shape of a cross. So if you had a bird's eye view, you're looking down on it, it would look like it's in the shape of the cross. All very magnificently built, they just got more magnificent as, as, as the years went by. But the major shift that happened when they went from the home to the cathedrals is that this meal, and it was a meal, it was a full-fledged meal that was served, devolved into a drink of wine and a bite of bread. This is where, this is where it all changed from a meal um, to a drink of wine and a bite of bread. Now, how many of you have ever been to any of the cathedrals in Europe? Have you ever been to one of those cathedrals before? It's magnificent, right? Just beautiful architecture here, but if you, if you, if you step foot in there, if you're there for some type of a service there, it is really hard to hear because it, the acoustics are built in a way where the sound just bounces, and so it's really difficult to hear and really understand what's going on up front, which is okay because for a bunch, several hundreds of years, the masses of services were done in Latin, and almost nobody understood, understood Latin. And so teaching and learning just was not a part of this stage of the church. And so the center of gravity for this um, stage moved from the table to the altar. And then in the 16th century, out of the Protestant Reformation and the church's return back to the Bible, if you wanted to hear the Bible in your own language, there's only one option. You had to come to church because this was before the printing press. And so nobody owned their own copy. And so if you actually wanted to hear scripture read, you had to come to church. And so the architecture changed to a colonial-style church, which was essentially this kind of rectangular-shaped box that came in a variety of sizes. And so whether you're on the East Coast in a high-end Episcopalian-type church, or if you're a small country church in Pennsylvania, colonial-style churches were basically just a preaching box, a box that was basically designed for someone to preach to a congregation. That's how they were designed. But then it doubled as a community center during the week. That's how these, these buildings were built. And so the point, of, at this point, the center of gravity then shifted from the altar to the pulpit. The pulpit became the center of everything that was, that was done. The pulpit became the dominant position within the church. And then around the turn of the last century, with the rise of the entertainment culture, from radio to TV to film, um, and due to urbanization where people were really flocking from agricultural community into city living and people were being crowded into the cities and then they go out in the town in search of something to do, music then started playing a larger role in the churches in the West. Now, worship by singing has always been around, even before Jesus. And so it's not that music is, was new, but the emphasis on worship by singing and the kind of worship I've seen with choirs and, and pipe organs, this became the predominant use that was being, you know, happening in churches. We tend to think that these things are old school, but when you look at church history, these, these are all things that are relatively new. In addition to all these cultural changes, Protestants 
got it into their heart to start spending money on churches. And so this brought in then the fourth church building style. And this is where the church evolved into a theater style, which is where we are right now. A stage is lifted up higher so that you can see and hear me. And the whole design is designed to project sound and, and music. Um, this, this one's actually a really great example here because this one was built in, in the 80s. And, uh, and so our sound systems have just gotten better and better, so you don't necessarily have to build structures like we had to do before to project sound. But this is built as a megaphone. So everything that's done on the stage is projected out to you, even if we didn't have a microphone system. It's theater style. It's what happens on the stage, and then you all can hear and see what's going on here on the stage. So the center of gravity shifted from the pulpit then to the stage. And so whether you're in a church of, ten, of, of, of 100, whether you're in a church of 10,000, this is still the dominant style for today. Now, my point in taking you down this little history lesson here is that there are things that we do in the modern church today that we just assume that are normal, such as a theater style and all of you facing, facing forward to a stage listening to a preacher. We tend to all kind of think of this just kind of normal. This is church, right? This is what we've come to know as church. But I think it's really important to understand that this was not always normal. And that's not a bad thing. I'm not trying to moralize any of, this, any of what I'm talking about here. I'm just trying to give you the story. But it's telling that the original architecture of the church, at least until the fourth century, and then it went further in, um, in the timeline in, in parts of Europe, and it still exists in, in China and parts of the world where the gospel is still illegal. But the original architecture of the church was a table in a home. And I just think this says something about what church at the core is. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 33, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, it's really interesting because this, this was their Sunday gathering. And notice it doesn't say when you come together to sing. Neither does it say when you come together to listen to Pastor Russ talk. It doesn't say that. What does it say? When you come together what? To eat. See, it's not that they ate a meal before or after the main event. The meal was the main event. In fact, the original disciples of Jesus actually had a name for this gathering. Any of you know what it was called back then? The enemy? It was more 1960s than that. It's called the Love Feast. The Love Feast. It is the 1960s, right? In the original Greek language, it's called the Agape Feast. That's what this gathering was called. Tertullian who was a bishop in the second century, he writes this about his, his church's weekly gatherings. He says, our feast explained itself by its name. The Greeks call it agape. Whatever it costs, or in other words, if it costs time or, or money to put all this together, whatever it costs, our outlay in the name of piety is gain. In other words, we're going to give back more than we ever give here in this situation. Since, with the good things of the feast, we benefit the needy. As with God himself, a particular respect is shown to the lowly, and so this was an act of social justice. We didn't have government welfare, and so people who were poor would come to the church for food, for, for sustenance. The participants, before reclining, this is kind of funny, 
So we've heard of kinds of when you come together, there's not you gotta get out of your head this type of setup here. You're coming to a meal. We're not coming and sitting in chairs at a table. It's all done on the floor. And so you're sitting, and then when you're eating, you're reclining a little bit more on, on the side of your, your, your push there. Um, so when you're so the participants before reclining takes first a prayer to God, as much as seeking to satisfy the cravings of the hunger. So this is a big meal, there's lots and lots of food. You're gonna come hungry and you're gonna leave completely satisfied, full. As much as as much as much is drunk as the fits the chase. It's even hard to say, so we'll read here. In other words, what he's talking about is there's gonna be there's gonna be wine here, then don't get drunk. You know, calm yourself and have some discipline here, is what he's saying. After each is asked to stand forth and sing as he can, a hymn to God, either one from Holy Scriptures or one from his own composing. As the feast committed with prayer, so with prayer it is closed. I just love how simple it all was. You come together, you pray, you eat a meal together, and I love this part. Each one by one, you're going to stand up and sing a song. We're still going to do this next week. <laughs> we're going to have, have each of you stand. So Gary will be up first, and so you're going to have to stand next week. And I'm going to sing an original song that you just you've created, or is it a hill song or a Bethel song, or is it an old school hymn that you're going to sing? Marilyn Bell last night is your next after. And so as you can follow, we'll just realize what I want. So you're going to have to stand and, and sing this. That's what they did. <laughs> This was their Sunday gathering. And we know if you keep on reading the New Testament, there was, there's more to this because there's, there's teaching. There's teaching in, 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 in their gatherings. There's prophecy. There's healing that's, that's going on. But my point that I want you to hear is that this is it. The love feast, the agape feast, that was church. That was church. And so... What does it say about the modern church today that we call our weekly gatherings a service? As if it's the pastor's job to provide goods and services for the religious consumer. Instead of a love feast where we just all come together to a table as family. So what I'm trying to do, we're trying to trying to get in this, this series here is that central to our following Jesus is this eating and drinking with other followers of Jesus and doing life together as family. Not just coming to a service and spectating. We're missing it. We're, we're missing it. And I just think over the past millennia, this, I think we've lost sight of this, this kind of very simple practice. And the reality, everybody, in spite of all of our modern-day technologies, in spite of all the, the amazing music that's being produced in our churches across the world, in spite of these impressive church buildings that we're building all over the place, in spite of extraordinary preaching, everybody. <laughs> in spite of all of this stuff, everybody, we continue to watch our society drift away from God and into secularism. You hear? You hear? We're missing something. We're missing some of this. Leonard Sweet, in his um, book from Table to Table, he said it this way. He said, an untabled faith is an unstable faith. A neglect of the table in our churches is echoed in our families 
and communities. I just think this is so true. We'll talk about more of the impact of what's going on in our misses in the church culture and how it's going into our families and into our communities. We'll talk about that, that, that next week. But I just think it's so true that so many of us have devolved into this untabled faith. And it's a faith where eating and drinking around a table with other followers of Jesus is no longer a core practice in our lives. And here's the thing that I'm beginning to realize is that when this happens, I just think we're in a precarious and dangerous situation of falling into the same trap that this religious leader did in Luke chapter 7. Where we just become so religious. This just becomes religion. We come and we do something. We come to a service where somebody's providing you something on a Sunday. And as a result, I think what happens is that we start missing this, really, this heart connection with God, where we no longer see and are moved by what's really on God's heart. And as a result, then the messiness of the people's lives around us begins to offend us, and we become so judgmental. And we keep carrying it on. We start fighting with each other. We start fighting over our own preferences of what God and church should be like. All the while, how we do church has changed drastically over the past 2,000 years. And when this happens, everybody, when we let this religious judgmentalism come into our life, we lose the innocence and the pure and unadulterated abandonment of just coming before Jesus just as we are. And all of our messiness, just like this woman did in Luke chapter 7, well, then you're caught up in his presence, and you just want to sit there at his feet, and you don't have one on you. That's what religion breaks inside of every one of us. It's just that innocence, that purity, just wanting to be in his presence. The reason why I switched up the service is because I've asked the worship team to come back, to do worship really at the end of the service, to give us an opportunity to respond. Because the reality is, everybody, you're neither going to bend towards being like this religious leader or to this woman whose life is very messy. And I think it, it really demands a response to this. And so I've asked the worship team just to lead us back in so we have an opportunity to respond. So if you want, just close your eyes right now. Because I don't want you to think about anybody else. And I want you to try to beat yourself and shake yourself out in just kind of a religious churchy thing. And I want you to just be able to sit here in this moment before Jesus. And I want you to be able to seriously ask yourself the question, do you see yourself more in this woman whose life is messy, or do you see yourself more in this religious leader? Because when you look at this religious leader, he, he really misses. I think if we were to be honest with ourselves, I just think so many of us have just been missing it. Maybe you're finding yourself becoming critical, cynical, and it's like your joy and your peace and your love for God has just been being snuffed out. And you, you feel like you're just going through the motions of something. Yeah, maybe you're coming to church, maybe you're singing a song, but it's just like you're going through the, the motions of it. You're just kind of spectating you're watching it happen around you instead of just coming 
just in the messiness of your situation, the messiness of life, and just being that way um, before Jesus. This, this woman here in Luke chapter 7 is messy, and maybe it's uncomfortable, maybe it makes you feel. The beauty of it is that she came with innocence. Maybe she messed up every social and etiquette and religious rule, but she came with just innocence, this desperation, because she knew how messed up her life was. And she had encountered Jesus in such a way that she couldn't hold back. That everything in her, all she wanted to do is be able to lavish her love to Jesus. And as a result, she experienced this encounter with Jesus. And I think so many religious people missed time and time and time again. She was forgiven, she was healed, and she was changed at this table because she held nothing back from Jesus in that place. I mean, she was just all in. She didn't care what other people were thinking or being said about her. She was just all in with Jesus. But I pray for every single one of us here this morning. Oh, you know every one of our hearts. And we can dress up our outer body in a nice shirt and clothes. And we can do our hair right and come looking and smelling just right into a church setting. But you really see what's going on on the inside of us. But I pray for every single one here today who's realizing how religious, how religious maybe we become. I pray for every one here who, who their eyes are open even to their own messiness that's disguised in religion. But I pray, would you soften every one of our hearts? Would you bring us back to that pure, unadulterated abandonment of coming before you just as we are in all the messiness, not pretending, no pretense, nothing hiding, but just as we are. How would you just open our eyes? But in this moment, this is a holy moment right here that you, you will shift, you'll, you'll, you'll break the hardness, the religious hardness that can get into our hearts, the churchiness, the, the, the spectatorness, just the going through the moment. How would you break that off of us? And Father, when we come, help us to come back to you, our first love. Help us to come back to who you are. Pray also for the person here that's been hurt by church, by religion, by Christians. We try to come in all the messiness and just felt judged. And I pray, Lord, would you heal their heart? And would you defend them? Would you stand up beside them just as Jesus did with this woman in Luke chapter 7? Would you, would you be? Lord, I pray that they would not miss, they would not miss what you have for them, that, that even as they're here today, Lord, that they would come back to you, Lord, that the church, that people would not be a distraction anymore, 
just setting just as she was. And that's just to pour out her love for you. She sits at your feet and lavish you that, that gratefulness of all you've done. And our Lord, with that childlike grace, would you bring that back in every one of us? That innocence, take us back to the It still exists. It's called spike nard and nard. It still exists. 
Lisa prayed for me in the first service. The first service. She uh, kissed him on my head, and I still smell. We had, we had to dilute it quite a bit because it's very potent. What she had was completely falling in. But I want you to think about this because Jesus said that what this woman did was she anointed him for burial.
Speak it this way. Say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's time to sing to God. It's time to sing to God. A brand new song. So that all his holy people will hear how wonderful he is. Turn them back to the sanctuary. Back rows now the front row. The stage is completely gone. Look at yourself in those mirrors back there. Say it with me. Say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's time to sing to God. It's time to sing to God. A brand new song. A brand new song. So all his holy people will hear how wonderful he is. Turn to your left. Face this way, everybody. Say it again. Say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. It's time to sing to God. It's time to sing to God. A brand new song. So that all his holy people will hear how wonderful he is. How wonderful he is. Speak that over your life. It's time to sing a brand new song. Come on. Shake free of the religious churchy thing and start singing a brand new song. Let your heart come alive. That is the message of this table. Thanks again for being here with us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, we want to help. You can find info about groups, teams, and other things happening at onechapel.com welcome. You can subscribe to future messages from One Chapel on your favorite podcast player. And of course, you're invited to services every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11.30. Have a great week.